Hello, everyone, and welcome back to today's episode of the Fluid Football Podcast. Uh, next week, we're going to have a special preview episode um, with the Bundesliga returning. But today, we have a very special guest joining us. Today, we have uh, Professor Stefan Szymanski, uh, Professor of Sports Management at the University of Michigan. He is a world-renowned sports economist um, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Soccernomics, um, along with many other publications. Uh, Professor, how are you today? Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me on, Abby, and I'm very, very well. I'm very pleased to be with you. And, um, you know, obviously you, your, your work f focuses on soccer, and so I'm just curious, you know, do you consider yourself a football fan, or is it more of just a professional interest? Um, well, I guess I've always liked sport, but I would never describe myself as a fanatic. And uh, it, this, I actually always preferred, um, in sporting terms, I always preferred watching rugby and cricket. So um, in that sense, I'm not the biggest soccer fan in the world. But um, I will say the more I've studied it, the more I enjoy watching it as well. So, you know, and I can watch a fair amount of soccer, let's, let's be honest. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm sort of a fan. Do you support any particular club or? Oh, well, I do now. Uh, since I moved to Michigan, I've become a big fan of Detroit City FC. So that's my team and um, I'm very proud to be a follower of them. That's very cool, yeah. Detroit City's done some um, you know, really cool stuff. They're a great team and I would, going to a game um, at Keyworth Stadium in Hamtramck is a, a a wonderful event. I strongly recommend it. Anybody who likes soccer could not but love the environment at, at, at their game. So uh, I strongly recommend your listeners to go along and have a, have a try out a game when 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 games resume, which they will one day. They will. Right. Um, so you know you're obviously passionate about you know economics and, and finance. Um, how did you realize that you wanted to combine those interests um, with an interest in, in sports? and soccer in particular? Well, um, I, I, I was, uh, my ambition was always to be a, a, an academic economist and uh, I got, went through and got my PhD and, and got a, uh, a job. My first job was actually as a postdoctoral fellow um, in uh, a business school, a London business school. And um, really I was not particularly focused on, uh, I had no interest in researching sports up until that up until that point and then we had a we were looking for a way to in in the research group I was with we were looking for a way to understand how businesses can be successful in competitive environments so if you imagine it's it's, it's not difficult to explain how businesses are successful when they don't have any competition but it is quite hard to think about how businesses can come rise to the top in a world that's intensely competitive and um, as a group, we actually thought about um, uh, sport as being a very good example where you have an intensely competitive environment, but also some businesses stand out. And we discovered that in England, you can get financial statements of uh, soccer clubs very easily. And so we could actually can conduct an economic analysis. So that's how I got started on this, because the data was available to answer a question that I was interested in. And um, I continued for many years to write on a number of different subjects. It wasn't the only subject I wrote about. But as time went by, I discovered that people were only interested in the stuff I wrote about sports. Everything else they ignored and they just wanted sports. So 
I just went with the flow and became a sports economist. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, Jacob, you wanna? Yeah, so as Avi mentioned, you know, we know you're very passionate about economics and finance and, and you've had some interesting talks recently regarding the impact of the coronavirus and club insolvency. Uh, and so as we know, the coronavirus is affecting the entire world in, in many different ways. And, you know, would you be able to talk a bit about how it's going to impact football clubs in England in particular from a financial perspective? Right. So, um, so one, one thing that makes soccer different from professional sports in the United States is the extent to which uh, soccer clubs uh, suffer from financial crises. So in the United States, most of the leagues are very profitable, the teams are very profitable, and so bankruptcy is something that's very rare, uh, and it usually only happens for some strange reason. Um, I mean, you suppose you might, might know or remember the Dodgers went bankrupt a couple of years ago, but it wasn't really because the Dodgers as a business was not viable, it's because of the, the owner was getting a divorce and there was a fight over the distribution of the assets. So it wasn't real, in that sense, it wasn't real financial failure. Whereas actually in the world of soccer, that's actually the norm. Soccer clubs collapse financially all the time and are bankrupted. Um, and I've been studying this um, in, for this phenomenon for about 10 years or so and trying to document what causes um, this to happen. And um, people may be familiar with the concept of financial fair play, which is a, a financial regulation introduced by UEFA a few years ago, which was also intended to address this issue of insolvency of football clubs. And one of the things that struck me is that the, the reasoning behind that was was quite was not was 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 mistaken in the sense that um, UEFA and a lot of people in soccer attribute financial failure to um, basically um, uh, immorality and um, uh, incompetence. So that essentially arguing that people that the people who run these clubs are just stupid and wicked and that if only decent people were running football clubs, this wouldn't happen. And my, I, take, I take a very different view. I think that this is actually an inherent consequence of the structure of the game. And one of the things that makes the game, the professional soccer game, so attractive to many of its fans is the system of promotion and relegation, which gives smaller teams the opportunity to rise up and compete with the big teams in the major leagues. But that also creates financial instability. And my point has been that, that although I'm not against the system of promotional relegation, I do think it causes this financial instability. So I've been trying to demonstrate that in my research. And one of the things, if you start to study the finances of the football clubs, you start to realize that effectively, all, pretty much all of the clubs are insolvent most of the time in a legal sense, in the, in the sense to which accountants would normally apply the concept. These businesses cannot stand on their own two feet, and they really only survive because of the financial support of wealthy individuals. And um, so, uh, and, and that's, that works, that actually works fine by and large because a wealthy individual puts his or her own money into propping up the club. So effectively they're paying to entertain the rest of us, which I think is fine. And then when, when they run out of money, they pass on the football club to somebody else. So even if a club becomes bankrupt, some new wealthy individual typically steps in to take over. 
And that's, that's been the state of soccer in England and in most of the world actually now for, for some time. So in that context, if we ask what's going to happen with the COVID crisis, we face a kind of different sort of problem. In traditionally, a club in, 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 in um, up until recently, what would happen was a club would get into financial difficulties and it would fail, but other clubs would um, would survive and be fine. And there would be little in terms of knock-on consequences. Now we're facing a different situation, which is essentially what you might think of as systemic failure, where all the clubs potentially are bankrupt. Then none of them can pay their debts. And much of the debt that football clubs have is between themselves. And so the failure of, any, of, of several clubs at the same time could bankrupt the entire system. So we're facing the prospect that all of football is, is basically bankrupt. And the question is, how does it come out of this? And there needs to be, effectively, there probably needs to be some settlement of debts within football and some restructuring of ownership as well. And in many of the football authorities, this is exactly what they're focused on at the moment, is you know, how do we come out of this and what kind of world are we going to live in uh, once the crisis is over? Gotcha. Uh, that's very interesting. So just real quick to clarify on a point that you made earlier. So you're saying that, like you said, these wealthy individuals come in and flood the club with, with, with cash. Are they, are they operating at a loss, these owners? Uh, yes. Yeah. So if you think about what, what does it mean to operate at a loss, it means that the revenue from your business is less than the cost of running your business. So essentially, these wealthy individuals put their own money in to keep the club afloat, to keep, to keep things going. And, you know, the reason they do this is uh, prestige. And, um, you know, it, it's just as owning a major league franchise is a, brings you great status and prestige in the United States, um, so it is in the rest of the world. Owning your local football club makes you a, you know, a local figure, a, a person of some importance. And um, in economics, that's called, the value of that is called amenity value. It's the value of um, the status that is given to you. So it actually has a monetary value. People are willing to pay for that status. And one of the, the arguments I've always had with, in terms of understanding American sports is that the, the owners in America, they get the immunity value and they get profits as well. And that's actually not necessary. People think that these owners need to make money in order to be willing to prop up the system. But the, the, the world of soccer proves that that's just not true. People are willing to, wealthy individuals are willing to put in billions into keeping these clubs going because of the prestige that it brings to them as an individual. So it assigns, like you're saying, it assigns economic value. They, they receive economic value in a way. Uh, well, is it, yes, I mean, eco, um, right, yeah, right, right. Well, the word economic means in that case, it's, it's of value to them. It gives them what economists would call utility. There's a satisfaction. So, and I, the way, you know, one way to think about it is to think about something, some activity that you might do, which costs you money, but which you still do it anyway. So if I have a party, I invite people around and provide them with food and drink, that costs me money. I don't get 
I, I, in that sense, I make an economic loss on that activity, but I still am happy to do it. I'm willing to do it because I get the satisfaction of seeing my friends mm -hmm. and having a good time and so forth. Well, that's essentially what's going on with wealthy owners and sports businesses. They don't need to make a profit because they're getting the satisfaction of all the status and prestige that they get from owning a, a, a team. Um, uh, so, and you know, the, the owners in, in the United States, they get it both ways because they actually also get to make a fat profit out of it as well. That my point is that actually is not essential. If you took that away, there'd still be the owners willing to put their money in. And um, I, I, I'm sure you've seen this, um, you know, Newcastle United is in, in the process of being taken over um, by Saudi Arabia. And, you know, their current owner, Mike Ashley, um, you know, while a lot of people don't like him, um, it seems like, you know, financially Newcastle is in a, a much better state than, than they were, you know, maybe 10 years ago when he, when he first, uh, 10 or 13 years ago when he first owned the club. Um, so I guess what are your thoughts on that takeover and, and I guess, you know, just kind of sports washing and, and I guess all of that? Well, so, I mean, one of the things about, I mean, this is part of the analysis, the work that I've been doing on insolvency and financial failure in uh, football clubs is, Normally, we think of bankruptcy as being a something of a disaster, and particularly it's a disaster in a local community. So if there's a factory in my town and it goes bankrupt and shuts down, everybody in the town suffers, the people who worked in the factory lose their jobs, the people in run businesses that serve the people who worked in the factory, they lose business as well, they may end up going bankrupt and you see you know, you, you see a whole community can decline in the face of, of bankruptcy. So generally, bankruptcy is a big problem and something, you know, in fact, we even have laws which allow, which try to prevent businesses from being forced into bankruptcy. In the United States, we call it Chapter 11, which is, is a way of trying to negotiate yourself out of going into bankruptcy because which was recognized with then that law was created precisely in recognition of the fact that bankruptcy was so damaging to communities. In the world of soccer, though, bankruptcy doesn't have that property. And the reason it doesn't is that even if the, if the owner of the business that runs the football club goes bankrupt, that doesn't mean the football club's going to die. And in fact, if you look at the evidence, they almost never die. It, someone always steps in. because, And that's really because in the rest of the world, soccer clubs represent community. They represent your town, your local social networks. And so there's always some way to preserve uh, the, the club because unless, unless the city itself or the town itself is gonna die because um, people will want, want to do that. The stadium has no real alternative use. So it's not that somebody's gonna use the stadium for something different. And you can always find 11 people to put out on a soccer pitch. So, in that sense, it, 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 the, 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 the very social, the social significance of soccer means that the clubs never die. It's, it's really hard to find any examples um, of any club of any significant size. And I mean a club that can attract more than uh, a thousand people to a game. So really quite small clubs, they always survive. Very interesting. What you're describing sounds exactly like what happened with Sunderland 
uh, over the past few years. Um, I'm not sure if you, we actually talked about the, the documentary about Sunderland on Netflix on the podcast a couple weeks ago. And you, you had a couple, couple people coming in representing a company that had bought out the club and they're being interviewed and, and they're essentially saying this club was going to die and, and we're here to, to kind of revive it, bring it back to life. It's, it's exactly what you're describing. It's really fascinating that, that you know, you're, right. you're talking about it. And of course, you have to always be very careful. The people who come in to save the club say, if it wasn't for us, the club would die. But that's nonsense. The club will survive. If they don't want to do it, somebody else does. There's always somebody who wants to do it. I, I think the interesting contrast is, is the United States. Where if you think about if you go if you think about going back to a um, hundred years ago to the United States and think about where which towns had a baseball team, there was there was no town that didn't have a baseball team that competed in a league of some sort. Minor league baseball was everywhere in the United States. Everybody had one. So if you think about you know our state of Michigan, um, even really quite small towns in Michigan had a baseball team a hundred years ago. Um, and there were, if you go back through the archives, you can find histories of dozens of Michigan baseball leagues. But all of those teams and leagues vanished. They all disappeared. And in some sense, that's a lot, that was a loss to every community. Every, every community lost their baseball team, lost something, in a way that if you took the soccer clubs away from um, uh, in, in, in the rest of the world, that would be a, a significant loss. Um, and it's interesting to think about why that happened. And my, my, my explanation, again, goes back to this concept of promotion and relegation. The soccer club never dies because somebody always hopes you're going to, you know, no matter what division you're in, you hope that you can get promoted. And it can, in theory, happen that you can get promoted by up to the Premier League. In baseball, there was no future for all of the minor leagues because of, there was no promotion and relegation. So, whereas, and I, that balances the point I made earlier when I said, well, okay, the, the promotion and relegation probably is the principal cause of bankruptcy among soccer clubs. It's also one of the main reasons that they survive. Right. Um, it's kind of interesting, like, promotion and relegation is, um, like you said, it, it can be so damaging financially. But at the same time, it drives, you know, these clubs, um, I guess, to stay in business. Um, and going off that, you know, the MLS is constantly under pressure to adopt promotion and relegation. So I was just curious, you know, how, how um, you know, feasible do you think that would be? And, and do you think that would be, um, uh, do you think that would, that would help the MLS? So in terms of feasibility, I don't think it's difficult at all to organize a system with promotion and relegation. Um, and I, there are people who will tell you that America is special and different and that it can't, it's too difficult to organize it here. I don't buy that as an argument at all. Um, I think it's perfectly feasible. Um, the reason it doesn't happen is because it's not profitable. For the same, exactly the reason I gave for the uh, and that the promotion relegation causes a financial problem for clubs, it causes a risk. Even if you're not relegated, the system of promotion relegation puts pressure on your finances because you're always having to. If you, the moment you start to fall down the table, you start to have to spend more to try and avoid uh, relegation. And there's a sort of, if you like, there's a pressure that builds up from the bottom. It isn't there. If you think about, again, think about the Detroit Lions, that's a 
very good example, right? Detroit Lions have a lousy season. What do they do? Nothing. They just wait for the next season and they have another lousy season. What do they do? Nothing. There's no upward pressure coming from the Lions on anybody else. They could just be the basement team because there's no relegation. So there is no way on earth that Major League Soccer will voluntarily introduce promotion and relegation because the owners simply see it as a way that they could end up losing money. Um, it's been an interesting question about whether you could enforce that from outside. And um, I don't know if you followed, there was, a, there was actually a case at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is the sort of highest international court for sport, where uh, a team uh, in a US team brought a case against um, the US Federation for not obeying FIFA regulation nine, I think, regulation nine, which says that there should be um, the, the, your, the, you should, uh, uh, your, your position, your status in the league should be determined on sporting merit primarily. And that was our, and that the main way to achieve that was through promotion and relegation, which is actually written into the FIFA statutes. And um, the case was about saying, well, the federation should insist that Major League Soccer and other leagues adopt promotion and relegation. And that case was lost. So um, the, the court decided that the federation did not have to do that. And it, I mean, it's very interesting that, I mean, people often talk about Major League Soccer, and it is an issue um, that Major League Soccer will not adopt promotion relegation, but it's also worth pointing out that um, it's hard to find any examples in the United States of a professional league that's ever adopted promotion relegation. I mean, it really, it, and part of this is, I mean, my view on this is that it, in the end, it comes down to culture more than anything, is that there is an, an aversion in the US to promotion relegation, which, and you know, bear in mind, I've been talking about this for many years and talking to Americans about this for many years, and the usual response I get is, that won't work. And which is uh, surprising in a way, because, you know, that's like saying, oh, what, so soccer doesn't work? I mean, it's not the world's most popular sport. Leagues aren't successful, but, um, but that's what culture does. I mean, culture makes you believe that your way is, in some sense, the right way. And, um, and I think, you know, perhaps in your generation, it, ideas are starting to change and people are starting to think differently. And so it's possible that in the future, more pressure could arise within the United States. But I think, you know, until, until there's sort of significant grassroots pressure in the United States to create it, I don't think, I don't think we're likely to see it happen. That's very interesting. I think at least one issue, in my opinion, that comes up if you introduce the promotion relegation system now, of course, you, you have you have a lot of fan bases that have kind of merged together, you know, people from all across the country supporting teams that aren't necessarily from their home city. Um, and it might be tough to, to build up large enough fan bases, uh, you know, for, for smaller teams from smaller cities. I think, and that, that could pose an issue as well. Well, I mean, I, you know, uh, England, Germany, Italy, Spain, uh, Russia, Brazil, Argentina, um, Bulgaria, Turkey, uh, Kazakhstan, um, China, um, Japan, um, Australia, 
well, not Australia, actually not Australia currently, um, but you know, I could go on. I mean, there are what, there are 208 countries in the world. There are, I think there are something upward of 100 countries with uh, soccer systems with promotion and relegation. And uniquely, United, in the United States, it's not possible. Uniquely? I doubt it. I doubt it. Possible. Maybe. I mean, maybe it doesn't sound very likely to me. I mean, again, as you know, I believe in something called Occam's Razor, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And Occam's Razor would, in this case, would say, look, if there isn't promotion relegation in the United States, it's because the people who run the leagues don't want it. And the reason they run the, don't want it is because it's not profitable. And I think that's that's a much better expression. That's why you don't have promotion. You could have promotion relegation in the NFL. You could have promotion relegation make in baseball. Be easy. You've got all these minor league teams. You could have promotion relegation there. It'd be very easy. It's not. It's not that you couldn't do it. It's it's the fact that it never happens in the United States. You have to say there's something more to it than um, it not being technically feasible. Right, and I think, it, like you said, it's just about the culture. I think. You know, here people look at you know sports clubs or, or businesses or as businesses to make profits, um, which is completely different than Europe. Um, and I think you know there's just not that appetite to um, you know from the top to have their um, franchises lose money. And you know, going off what Jacob said, um, you know, I think especially the smaller teams might struggle because um, you know, in my hometown, um, Lansing. They, uh, we had a, a soccer team last summer that folded. It was in the, I think, League One of, of USSF. And it folded, and there's just not really an appetite to bring it back. Um, and I think, you know, culturally where that's different is, you know, um, because it's such a new team, uh, you know, there's just not that fan base here. Um, so, so I think, you know, what Jacob was saying was, you know, especially in the smaller teams, there's not necessarily that history um, that you have like in England. Where it's where it's so integral to the community. Yeah, I, I, I'm not again. I don't think I agree with that. I think I, I think um, I, I think the point is that the, the reason that that Lansing and teams like that fold is because what's the point? What 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 is there to gain? What if, if what if you revive Lansing and they win their league? Well, so what? What happens? Nothing. It's, it's, right. it's you play the league again next year. There's no there's no ultimate reward for winning. So there's not really any big point to coming back. Now, if there was promotion relegation and there was, you know, Lansing could one day become a major league team, there's going to be, I mean, you know, one thing you can say about the United States is it's, the, it's there's a lot of entrepreneurialism around, right? There's a lot of entrepreneurs saying there's an opportunity here. There's a lot of entrepreneurs saying that kind of crazy things are an opportunity, that people will, people are, if, if they think there's a small chance, they'll give it a go. Why not? Let's, let's, let's hope because, you know, and there's an awful lot of optimism in business in the United States. People are very positive, go for it, give it a chance. That's very characteristic. So, you know, if you said, well, if we revive Lansing, we could become a major league soccer team one day. Right. There's a ton of entrepreneurs out there who say, yes, we should try this. Might not work, but we should give it a go. And that's that's the difference, it, it, you know. And it, I don't think I don't think it's the history. I think it's it's simply the fact that playing in a minor league is a dead end without promotion relegation. There is no end game. There is no upside. If you're going to make an invest, if you're going to take a risk, you need there to be an upside, right? Right. 
thing, something really good is going to happen. Well, you know, being being the champion of a fourth tier league year in year out is not much of an upside. That that that's a problem. So that's why I think promotion relegation makes makes the difference and and, and is the difference you survive. After all, you might be right in terms of no tradition in soccer, but that's not true in baseball. Clearly, there's long traditions in baseball, and yet we've seen the death of, of the only minor league teams. Essentially, are the teams which are owned by the major league teams, right? They used right. to be a huge network of um, uh, successful independent minor league teams playing what used to be called the American National Sport, right? And playing it for you know for many decades. So there was tradition there and still they died. So I, I, I honestly don't think it's, it's, it's tradition in history. I think it's the lack of any upside. So very, very interesting point you're making. You've, you've already convinced me um, in terms of the idea of, of, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit and, and whatnot. Uh, and the idea of incentivizing clubs and fan bases and, and people, individuals, to, to bring a club from the bottom to the top. And, one of my concerns originally, you know, before this actually was, you know, if, if a small team was relegated, would the fan base lose interest? But like the point that you made earlier about, you know, clubs in England, you have new owners come in with, you know, of course, they're, like you said, they're the ones that are going to bring it back to the top, but it's kind of an everlasting cycle, like a revolving door of people coming in and out, uh, keeping it alive despite the fact that maybe it is insolvent uh, in a sense. I think um, it'd be really interesting to see promotion and relegation with like college sports, like, you know, the big 10, you're relegated to the Mac like that. Well, I actually have a paper. I published a paper on this with uh, a colleague, um, Jason Winfrey, uh, a couple of years ago on designing a promotion relegation system for um, collegiate football. Because it would actually work, it would work phenomenally well, and um, uh, you would actually see a lot of progress. It would actually make a lot more sense. You'd get a lot better matchups in the end if you had a promotion relegation. So you created a, a, a vertical hierarchy made up of the biggest teams in the US. Um, you'd really get, you'd really get a much more interesting concept. So yeah, I think, I think, I, I there's no doubt it could be done. Um, I, I think, uh, and it's interesting. I mean. As I say, I, I think the main obstacle is culture and the lack of familiarity uh, in the United States with the concept. But one thing that's happening with with soccer is the particularly the growth in the younger generation of interest and familiarity with the world of soccer is going to lead people to say, well, you know, this can work. The argument that I used to encounter, oh, well, this could never work in practice, is becoming less and less credible as people get to understand more and more um how how it works in other countries and also noting that for example i mean if, if it when i first started to make this argument sort of 25 years ago a long time ago right um back then the you know in economic terms the nfl or the nba or major league baseball were far bigger than the premier league or the bundesliga or la liga or anything like that 
that's becoming less and less true. People, as these organizations and institutions become economically very large, the argument that you can't be economically viable or you can't, you, you can't succeed on a large scale, that becomes less and less credible as well. Although, you know, I will put it the, I mean, of course, here I'm, I'm sort of banging the drum for promotion relegation because, you know, uh, again, perhaps because of culture, perhaps the history, I think it's a good system whatever the reasons. I will say, I, I will point out also that um, many owners in the soccer world might well try to abolish promotion and relegation in Europe precisely because it would help make them more money. Um, and there's, you know, there's been discussion in Europe about the concept of a closed Super League, which would include only the elite clubs. Um, there's been talk of that since the 1980s, and it hasn't happened, but there have been several times when it's come close to the creation of a breakaway league. So, I mean, this can go both ways. I, I mean, my view is promotion relegation is a good institution, institution system, but just because something's good doesn't mean so it's going to happen. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I would really hate to see, um, you know, a closed league like that happen because, like you said, you know, there, there's so much to play for. You know, you see a team like Leicester City who win the, the the Premier League, and you know they wouldn't even be eligible to play in Europe. So I really hope that does not happen. Yeah, and I I think I mean interestingly, um, just as uh, culture is the obstacle to introducing it in um, the United States, I think culture is probably the best defense of promotion and relegation. The one thing is it would upset people in Europe so much if you tried to abolish it that it's quite likely that politicians would get involved. Of course, politicians try to avoid getting involved in sports most of the time because it's a risky business. Um, but, they, but when most of their constituents have the same opinion, they're they inclined to uh, step in and pass, even pass legislation. And so um, at times when this has been in in discussion before, politicians have stepped in, and I, my guess is if, if they tried to abolish it in Europe, they, they would step in again. But, but we have seen recently, for example, um, the uh, Liga MX suspending uh, promotion relegation. So um, they never really, I think they never really had a very strong promotion relegation system. They had, there were always a number of issues with it, but they, they could, they suspended it for the moment. And uh, I think, I think if you ask, if you were to sit Don Garber down and talk to him about what he thinks about promotion and relegation. I think he would, he probably in the end, he would come around to saying, you, you know what, I think promotion and relegation is going to be, uh, I think our system's going to work better, which is his view. And I think he would think that promotion and relegation might well disappear faced with what he thinks is superior competition from MLS. Hmm. That's, that's yeah, that's really cool. But, <laughs> um, so I don't want to open up a, an entire new conversation here, but you bring up, you know, Liga MX abolishing, or, you know, putting on hold the promotion relegation in England and in, in some of the major European leagues with the current situation at hand for the leagues that have decided they can't continue the season for, for health reasons. Do you think it's, appropriate and necessary to carry out promotion and relegation as the tables stand? Um, I think it's a very difficult issue. So I, I mean, clearly this, this is, not, I mean, 
this is a classic example of an argument that's going to go to court because clearly there isn't a right or wrong answer here. I mean, you know, the 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 the, the end the we can't be sure of who would have been promoted and relegated um, uh, if the season had been completed. In fact, I did my own sort of simulations um, actually uh, for um, for the case of the Premier League, um, looking at. Um, and I actually published the, my forecasts of what the uh, points would have been and what the promotion relegation places would have been um, had, had the season been completed. And one thing that came out of that analysis was that based, this is a statistical analysis, but I came to the conclusion that uh, although uh, Bournemouth was in the relegation place and, and uh, Brighton was a few places above it, actually, um, if the season had been played out, it's actually Brighton that would have been in the relegation spot and Bournemouth that would have escaped. Now, you can argue with my statistical model and because it's just a statistical model and statistical models can be wrong. You know, I, you know, one thing we've learned in the current crisis is the phrase all models are wrong, right? So, and that, that's a fair point. Um, but I do think it means that um, if, if, you, if you insisted on relegation on current positions, then Bournemouth would have a case to say, well, you know, that, that's unfair. It's a biased result. We hadn't played all of the games, then we would have had some easier games to, to finish up with, and that would have uh, favoured us. Um, and at the same, by the same token, if you were to use my model or a similar model and then demote uh, Brighton, then Brighton would say, but we were not in a relegation bot. That's just purely hypothetical and your argument. And a judge would have to make this, this, this is sort of almost impossible decision as to choose between us. And so, and that's why some people say, well, then, then the easy thing is to say, well, we suspend, we suspend it all and nobody's promoted and relegated. But then the clubs in the championship are going to be very upset. And bear in mind that, I mean, nowadays, I mean, this is the, um, the 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 playoff game the playoff final for promotion to the premier league is the most valuable game in sport anywhere in the world it's on that one game hangs about 150 million dollars right the winner of that game gets 150 million dollars and the other gets nothing that's pretty big and to say to deny somebody who was in position to get that payday that's also going to be a problem so i think the answer is that that i, I so I don't have a, a, an answer which is fair to everybody. And I think um, in the end, it will be decided in court as to what the answer is. Yeah, um, the Eredivisie, you know, they um, suspended, you know, the, the league so there's no promotion or relegation. And I know in the second division, there's a team who's 11 points clear. Um, so they, they were very upset about that, obviously. But, you know, like you said, I don't know if there's a, is a, there's a right answer here either way. Well, and then again, this is what the court of arbitration for sport was was invented for. I mean, that's that's what they do. I mean, I think you. I mean, you can imagine some things. I mean, so one thing you could say, well, you could have some financial compensation scheme which said, well, you know, we will, um, we will compensate teams according to you know what position they were in, and so that uh, on the basis that they might have generated some revenue. Um, 
you could imagine that as being possible. And, and, and frankly, it's not as big a problem in Eredivisie as it is in the Premier League, right? In Eredivisie, I mean, the difference between being the first tier and the second tier in, in the Netherlands is not nearly as big financially. I mean, it's, it's significant, but it's not, it's not on a scale that it is in the Premier League. So I think, again, it, it depends on, on the particular uh, league that you're, that you're looking at as to, as to how severe this problem is going to be. Right. It'll, it'll be interesting to see and follow how that the whole situation goes. And, and like you said, in, in court, there's other layers to add to it, too, like player contracts, transfers. You know, the transfer market's going to be completely shaken up, I think. Uh, you know, kit sponsorships, a lot of different costs that the clubs are incurring. And, and there's, there's a lot to consider, you know, when it goes to court, for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, how, how do you see, um, you know, this summer's transfer market, you know, being impacted? Do you think we'll see any big money transfers at all? Or, or is that going to be a thing of the past for the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to see clubs transferring large sums of money. I mean, it's not clear how many clubs actually have any cash right now. So one of the things is, you know, in order to, in, in, if you're going to actually, so let, let me go back a moment. Um, when we when we talk about a transfer fee, when we talk about a player being sold for so many millions of dollars, um, does does cash actually change hands? And actually, the amount of cash that change hands is usually quite small because mostly these uh, deals are settled by cancelling out other transfers elsewhere in the system, so that in some sense it all cancels out and. Small amounts of money may change hands, but the amounts of money are relatively small uh, compared to the total. Uh, however, I mean, it's not clear that the clubs have any money uh, to hand out right now. So it's not clear whether there's any cash. Now, and, and the other thing that happens is these, these player contracts are held on the balance sheets of the clubs as what are called intangible fixed assets. So these are actually assets of the business. And these businesses, these assets help to make these clubs solvent. It means when your assets, when you, what you own is greater than your liabilities, which is what you owe, then you're solvent. The problem is these, if these intangible fixed assets are not worth as much because there's nobody to buy out there, then again, these clubs become insolvent. So even quite big clubs that look fine at the moment could look actually in quite severe financial difficulties if they have to write down these player contracts because there's no trading going on. Now, what might happen is that there are swaps between the clubs and these swaps occur. So, you know, you could take two players of, of roughly equal ability and agree to swap them at a value, at a book value of 100 million euros each. So in that sense, you've sold two, that's two pretty big transfers, right? But no money changed hands at all. And that might be convenient in order to make your balance sheets look, look better. And each club then is, is something's done each other a favor. So I think one, one thing you can see is I think clubs will, so first thing is I think clubs, you'll see swaps between clubs of players, which will be valued, but there won't be money changing hands. And then I think the second thing is you might see, you might see these, um, these kind of asset swaps becoming actually more popular as a way of propping up the balance sheets of the clubs. And, um, you know, if, 
if the season was to return, um, you know, in England, and the season kind of stretched on beyond, you know, I think June 30th is when most contracts expire. You know, I guess, how, how do you think that would be resolved? That's a great question. Um, so I think, you know, in, in England, you have the, the, the Professional Footballers Association, the PFA, which is a pretty strong organization. And um, they're not quite as strong as the players unions in, in the, that you see in the United States, but they are pretty strong. And they have a long history of working together with the leagues. And I, I, I see, in that case, I see some kind of compromise emerging. The players typically are in a pretty strong position in relation to getting paid their wages. And I think uh, they'll be under a lot of pressure, uh, under a lot of pressure to, to, get, to get games played. So it's not so much um, a matter of finding the time to play, to play them or even going over contract dates uh, within reason. I think, it's, I think the issue is more going to be about safety and I think the PFA is going to be very keen to ensure that games are played under conditions where, where, where the safety of the players can be, can be pretty secure and I think, that's a, I think that's a big problem. I think, um, uh, I mean it's clear already, you know, we saw this week that the German government gave the go-ahead for the Bundesliga to play but already there are some question marks being raised about whether it's going to be wise and you know it only takes a few players to get infected for everybody to start saying hang on this is a mistake and, and we shouldn't do this so um until i i think i think this is much more about the 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 medical side than it is about the legal contract side i think until these games are really safe i think uh uh i i think it's going to be difficult to, to play them. Um, I would advise against it anyway. I think you know we should put the player safety uh, first. Um, but any and if anything does, if they play and they're not safe and something does go wrong, then I think you'll end up stopping it. Yeah. So yeah, at the end of the day, it does come down to the issue of of safety and health. And we, we've saw the Bundesliga is resuming in the next couple of weeks. We'll, we'll we'll see we'll see how that goes. We'll. It'll be interesting to follow that as well. But I think that's all the time we have for today. But Professor Professor Szymanski, thank you so much again for, for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Of course. And, you know, for everybody listening, be sure to check out Professor Szymanski's work, Soccernomics, a fantastic book uh, that explains major economic trends in global football, talks a lot about where international football is headed, some really interesting stuff. Um, and yeah, Professor, we're hoping to see you in Ann Arbor in the fall. We'll see. Excellent. Yes, one way or another, I'll be around in the fall. Awesome. Thank you very much again. Thank you. All right. all right. That was awesome. Hope you all enjoyed that. So we want to catch up real quick on some transfer rumors and other events that have come up over the past week. So the Premier League team of the season was announced by BBC. It was voted by fans, but I'm going to list the team real quick. Uh, you had Alisson, Trent, Virgil van Dijk, Soyuncu, Andy Robertson, Kevin De Bruyne, Jordan Henderson, Bruno Fernandes, Mo Salah, Sadio Mane, Sergio Aguero. What on earth is Bruno Fernandes doing in the Premier League team of the season? I don't understand. Avi, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the only caveat here is, um, you know, it's fan voted. So obviously the, the United fans must have spammed that. But I mean, 
there has to be some kind of oversight from DVC not letting this happen because, you know, Bruno Fernandez played five games in the Premier League. Um, so, you know, as, as good as he was in those games, he does not merit, you know, being in the team of the season at all. Five appearances. I don't care if he scored 10 goals and had 10 assists. You can't put him in the team of the season. The season. Exactly. Oh, man. But anyway, you know, I mean, you have other players. You have, you have Ndidi, you have James Madison, Jack Grealish, who, who all get in there ahead of him for me. Most players in the Premier League get in ahead of him just because of, you know, his, his lack of appearances. But yeah, there, there definitely should be a, a limitation there. You know, you should have at least played like half the games in the season. You know, that's, I think that's, that's just kind of poor planning by uh, BBC's fault or there. Yeah. But uh, all right, give us give us the first transfer rumor. Yeah, so um, you know, obviously Manchester City, um, they're dealing with a Champions League ban potentially. They've appealed it, so you know we're yet to see how that's going to work out. But Kevin De Bruyne said, you know, he he um, will have to reconsider his future if the ban is enforced because you know that's two years without Champions League football, and you know that's pretty much um, you know that's not going to fly with the top players in the world such as himself. So, you know, he's been linked with uh, Juventus. I know he, he said in an interview he'd love to play with Cristiano Ronaldo because you could just chip the ball off to him anywhere in the pitch and he would head it in. So, um, you know, that's definitely one to watch, uh, you know, and, and we'll see if um, their appeal is, is overturned. Yeah, I mean, De Bruyne is in his prime. He's the best midf- midfielder in the world at the moment. And I, you honestly can't blame him if the ban is upheld. Uh, two years is too long for a player like De Bruyne. It would be funny to see him in a Juventus kit. It's just not something I can picture right now. But nonetheless, it would be a scary sight to see with that combination uh, between yeah. him and Ronaldo. And I, I, don't, think up, yeah, yeah. Ban, I don't think City's ban is, is going to be, you know, all the, all the way two years. Um, you know, just we saw Chelsea's ban on um, transfer window get shortened. So I do think there's going to be some repercussions, but it's, it's definitely not going to be as harsh as, as two years, I think. But, you know, we're just going to wait and see. Yeah. Next up, uh, Timo Werner is almost certainly leaving Germany in the summer. Uh, We don't know for what price. We don't know, you know, exactly if it's going to be Liverpool. We don't know, you know, absolutely if it'll be Liverpool. But signs are pointing to Liverpool. Bayern is out of the race, it seems. He does not want to go to Bayern. It really does look like we're going to see him... uh, lining up for Jurgen Klopp next season. Yeah, um, you know, he, he said he wants a new challenge. He wants to, um, you know, leave the German league. So, you know, it seems like all signs are pointing to the Premier League and, um, you know, specifically Klopp and uh, Liverpool. Um, but obviously with the coronavirus, you know, that throws um, a bit of a question mark into, um, you know, whether that transfer would be completed this summer or, you know, maybe next year. But it does seem like he's going to um, – you know, come to Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, he's one of one of few players, I think, who can add to that squad. So it'll be difficult for other sides in the league to, to compete, especially after this season. Yeah, and, um, you know, Bayern is, are also interested in um, you know, Leroy Sané from City. Um, you know, but I, I don't think Bayern want to play, pay anything close to what he's actually worth. You know, I heard, I saw an article that said, um, you know, around 35 million pounds which is, um, you know, obviously very low for a player who was, you know, once rated, I think, you know, 80 million was his valuation at one point. Um, so I, I don't know what if City's going to be willing to let him leave, um, you know, for that price. 
I think he's going to end up staying again. Uh, you know, City, you know, don't he, – he's not out of contract yet, so I don't think City, um, you know, feel the need to let him go just yet. But, you know, I think next summer is when you're going to see a, a whole lot of transfer activity. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been an interesting case, Leroy Sané, because, well, we mentioned in our, our very first episode of the podcast, we love Leroy Sané, both Avi and I. Um, but, he, you know, he's not seeming – to receive the same love from City. Of course, he's also had injury issues, but regardless, he, he hasn't he hasn't performed and hasn't been given the opportunities that at least I believe he deserves. Uh, Avi, I think you agree. Uh, yeah. but, but seeing him in Germany, lining up alongside Lewandowski and Serge Gnabry would be, it, it, it would challenge the world. You know, it, it would be one of the greatest front threes in world football. Yeah, and I think, you know, for whatever reason, Sané, He's had trouble with the German national team also. Um, I don't, I'm not sure exactly why, but, you know, I love, uh, you know, Sané, he, he's, um, I think people just kind of overlook him because there's so much talent on that city side. But, I mean, when he's in his prime, I mean, he's, he's, he's up there with Sterling, in my opinion, as, you know, one of the best wingers in the world. Um, obviously, you know, we'd like to see him get healthy again. Uh, but, yeah, I think, you know, a move to Germany could be what he needs to, you know, revitalize his career. Yeah, and, and lastly, just another bit of news before we wrap up. Um, the Premier League bottom three were threatened with relegation. Uh, and uh, obviously, we just spoke with Professor Szymanski about the idea of promotion and relegation and, and the issues with that this season in particular. But what do you think, Avi, about that? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's kind of crazy. You know, the, the rest of the league um, pretty much is in favor of, uh, you know, playing out the season by the bottom three. Um, you know, they have some concerns about where the games are going to be played. And so basically the rest of the Premier League was like, if you try to stop us from restarting these games, uh, we're just going to vote to relegate you, which is a pretty, you know, strong arm move. Um, uh, it's kind of like a, I don't know, gangster move is pretty much the, the best analogy I can come up for. It's kind of dirty. And, um, but, you know, that just kind of shows the power disparity, um, you know, especially with the clubs at the top. And, um, you know, the top six, I think, are, are getting really tired of the rest of the league. Um, and, you know, that's something that, you know, Professor Szymanski talked about, a potential Super League forming. Um, you know, I hope that doesn't happen. But, you know, you can see, you know, the, the, the tensions are high, um, you know, really in the, in the Premier League because, you know, it's all about the money. And, um, you know, the top six feel like they've kind of been dragging the Premier League along for a while here. Absolutely, absolutely. It'll be another another interesting one to follow. That about wraps it up for today. Thank you all for tuning in. Again, be sure to check out Professor Stefan Szymanski's work. Uh, you know, he's got several publications, several books that offer a lot of insights into the, the world of, of sport business and, and specifically the economics of soccer. Uh, make sure to, to follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you.